You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Tuesday, June 23rd, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. But first, Nick Correa with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. Wirecard AG's ex-CEO, Marcus Braun, had resigned last week after news broke of 1.9 billion euros, or $2.1 billion, went missing from the German fintech company. Braun had turned himself in yesterday evening and is now detained by Munich prosecutors as part of an investigation into the company's accounting practices. The scandal, now a national embarrassment, has led to calls from the government to enact urgent regulatory reform. Currently, Wirecard is in discussions with its creditors and talking about full-fledged restructuring. Marcus Braun was forced to liquidate the majority of his stake in Wirecard as he pledged 4.2 million shares in order to secure a 150 million euro loan in 2017. The margin call was triggered as Wirecard stock has plunged over 80% since last Wednesday. Today, Germany's finance minister Olaf Scholz said, quote, auditors and regulators don't seem to have been effective here. We need to quickly clarify how we have to change our regulatory requirements in order to be able to monitor complex corporate networks across the board promptly and quickly, end quote. Katie Schroeder, a criminal defense lawyer in Frankfurt, said, quote, given the numbers, it's certainly the biggest accounting scandal in Germany. You'd have to think pretty hard to find a case of such a scope, end quote. On Friday, Ed's going to be speaking to an investor who's been right on the money on this story, Roddy Boyd, a past contributor who's a pioneer in uncovering corporate fraud and one who has been following the Wirecard story closely for years. Roddy was early in sounding the alarm bells about Wirecard's use of shell companies to inflate earnings. For example, Wirecard received 450 million euros from Card Systems Middle East FZ LLC, a subsidiary with a shadowy paper trail and seemingly, as Roddy alleged, only one full-time employee. In one of Roddy's articles published last year on Wirecard, he said that, quote, few companies can explain their meteoric growth as alluringly as Wirecard AG. According to one of its preferred narratives, Wirecard presents itself as Europe's leading financial technology innovator, end quote, presenting itself as a bank to, quote, steadily generate low-risk revenue through the sale of integrated banking and credit card processing services to businesses, end quote, and sell consumer prepaid credit cards. Wirecard software was designed to, quote, remove the friction from electronic payments for both merchants and consumers, end quote. In September 2018, Wirecard AG had displaced Commerce Bank in the DAX, an index representing 30 of Germany's biggest companies. And by January 2019, their market cap was almost 24.6 billion euros. However, Wirecard has been the target of many investigations by reporters such as Dan McCrum of the Financial Times and as well as law firms. In McCrum's attempt to uncover the company's seedy practices, Boffin filed a criminal complaint against FT reporters and short sellers and banned short selling for two months last year to protect the company from speculators. But it turns out the speculators were right. So stay tuned for Roddy's interview on Friday. This story is far from over. And now I'll send it over to Ash and Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Thanks, Nick. Welcome back, Ed. Good to see you. Looking good, Billy Ray. Thank you, sir. Why are you know, you're supposed to say looking good, Lewis? You know, that, that, that's how it goes on trading places, right? I, I know. I love that movie. I'm just so fired up to talk about Wirecard. What is going on? Yeah, I thought that Wirecard thing was good. We're going to be talking to Roddy Boyd. And uh, I think that really at the end of the day, the Germans are really thinking a lot about uh, Wirecard and what's it's all over the news. When I look at Handelsblatt, which is a German newspaper that I read, Every other story, it seems, is about uh, is about Wirecard, and the same is true in many of the other dailies in Germany that they're talking about. It. Here's an interesting quote for you that I I, I think uh, gets at the whole issue. This is from John Kenneth Galbraith's uh, The Great Crash, 1929. Here's what he said. He said to the Economist, embezzlement is the most interesting of crimes, alone among the various forms of larceny. It has a time parameter. Weeks, months, or years may elapse between the commission of the crime and its discovery. This is a period, incidentally, when the embezzler has his gain and the man who has been embezzled, oddly enough, feels no loss. There is a net increase in psychic wealth. At any given time, there exists an inventory of undiscovered embezzlement in, or more precisely, not in the country's business and banks. This inventory, it should be perhaps be called the bezel amounts at any moment to many millions of dollars. It also varies in size with the business cycle. In good times, people are relaxed, trusting, and money is plentiful. But even though money is plentiful, there are always many people who need more. Under these circumstances, the rate of embezzlement grows. The rate of discovery falls off and the bezel increases rapidly. In depression, all this is reversed. Money is watched with a narrow, suspicious eye the man who handles it is assumed to be dishonest until he proves himself otherwise. Audits are penetrating and meticulous. Commercial morality is enormously improved. The bezel shrinks. So that's exactly the situation <laughs> that we find ourselves in now. The Brilliant. bezel is shrinking. Brilliant stuff, Ed. Brilliant stuff. A net increase in psychic wealth, a temporary net increase in psychic wealth, the great Professor Galbraith. Uh, to frame the story, Ed, for people who haven't been following it as closely as I know you have, uh, because it's obviously it's a German story, what is happening with Wirecard and why is it so significant? So what was happening is that Wirecard is, is a roll-up. That is, it's a company that got large as a result of many acquisitions. And at some point in time, around 2015, Dan McCrum, who is a reporter at the Financial Times, uh, came across the, what he called anomalies and uh, started to report on them. And over time, you know, he kept on reporting on them and other people picked them up. But nonetheless, you know, the roll-ups continued. And what it turned out is, is, is that there was all sorts of phony accounting going on during this period of time booking fake revenue and no one really cared because the times were good we were in a bull market it was only later uh when they found out that in 2019 and and just recently that definitely definitely there was fraud 
particularly in the Asian uh, uh, roll-ups that they did in India and elsewhere. And so it's a perfect example of how the business cycle works, that companies like WorldCom or Enron, they can get through many years where they're doing all sorts of phony things, but only when the tide goes out, when the economy goes down, do people start to really question. And that's what happened to Wirecard. It's a perfect example of how it works every cycle. You know, when the tide goes out, you get to see who has no clothes on. Yes, as uh, Warren Buffett pithily summed up, uh, perhaps Professor Galbraith. For those of you who aren't familiar with the, with the company itself uh, on the operation side, it's a fintech play. It's a German fintech play. Uh, effectively, uh, while, uh, Wirecard was doing e-commerce, they were doing some uh, white label coding so that would allow allegedly empower uh, companies of all sizes to embed e-commerce functionality in their websites. Um, I, I was struck actually by Roddy Boyd's description of it. I read a piece that he wrote uh, in April where he he effectively describes it as really a point of national pride in Germany, almost a, a combination of Google and JP Morgan. Right. And, you know, the reason is, is because I, I think it's twofold. It's it's manifold, actually, because the Germans don't have an equity culture. Uh, the first time they did have an equity culture was during the Neue Markt period, which was at the, during the Internet bubble. And that exploded with a lot of embezzlers and uh, phoniness that went on. People lost their shirts there. And so this is a point of pride for them, particularly when you think about Facebook, Amazon, Google, all those names, they're all American. They wanted to say, look, you know, we have our technology companies too, that we're, we're innovating, we're doing FinTech, there you go. And this was a very big company. And so they were very proud of that fact. Yeah. But now it's all gone pear-shaped and, uh, you know, the recrimination has begun. We saw that the CEO stepped down, he was arrested and he was released on bail just recently. I think that you know we have a long way to go before this is over. Likely, you're going to see a bankruptcy, uh, and it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, and now it seems like a great deal of the innovation and creativity was happening on the accounting side of the business. Exactly. I think this is probably especially uh, painful for, for Germans if, if you don't have friends in the German business community. The idea of standards, of following the rules, uh, of doing things the proper way is an incredibly important value in German culture in general, but especially in German business culture. Yes. Uh, uh, so I think it's a, it's a, a blaue Auge, as they would say, um, that the, the, basically it, it really tarnishes the image of Germany as a place to do business, as a place that has rectitude in terms of how they perform their their functions. And so the German press is all over this uh, asking what went wrong. It's it's to a certain degree similar to what happened with the Gutesloh thing that we talked about yesterday, because the Germans take it very seriously that they do the necessary things in order to make sure that they keep this virus under control. They feel like, you know, we're taking all the necessary steps. So it's a, it's a, a black eye for them to... Uh, to have this sort of an outbreak, a very similar kind of mindset on both levels. Yeah, and almost the mirror images of each other, a point, a point of national pride about how well the healthcare system and uh, employing things in a very rule-based, standardized way based on, uh, based on real data helped the country. Uh, and, then, and then this, as you say, a black eye. Exactly. And yeah. you know, interestingly, just put, putting this in context, 
the market up today uh, remarkably. Uh, you know, I think that, as I've been saying, I believe that we're on the cusp of some uh, ructions here. And the market's taking all of these kinds of things in stride. Nothing can stop the market. The, the Fed has your back. Really, people are saying the reopening is, is proceeding apace. My belief is, is it has nothing to do with the narrative at the end of the day. Really, the market internals are such that uh, things have the a rolling uh, stone gathers no moss. You have animal spirits gathering and people are just uh, p- piling in. The Fed yep. has unleashed the animal spirits. And in the midst of what I would consider a depression, we're seeing the Nasdaq hit new all-time highs. Just before we went on, I was looking at some of these uh, shares. You know, Facebook, for instance, trading at uh, a 34 multiple, 34 times PE. Alphabet trading at a 30 multiple. You know, you look at uh, Microsoft trading at a 35 multiple. I mean, these are nifty 50 or internet bubble levels of uh, of numbers that can't be justified. If you th- think back to 1999, 2000, people were talking about uh, certain uh, certain companies like this. Let's say Microsoft trading at you know 60, 70 times earnings, and they were trying to justify that. Now we're talking about Microsoft, a 1.4 trillion dollar market cap company trading at 35 times earnings. It's there's no justification that you can make given the level of earnings that Microsoft is likely to have in terms of growth. Uh, it, it's it's a bubble, pure and simple. It's driven by the Fed. It's driven by liquidity, and it will end very badly. Yeah, you know, you you make some excellent points there, Ed, and and definitely things that I've been thinking about as well. Amazon closes up uh, almost two percent on the day, one point eight six percent. Apple up over two percent, two point one three percent. Perhaps some of this a tailwind on the switch uh, from Intel to proprietary chip technology. Uh, but still, look, you know, we had a day where where these uh, the tech stocks were up at their peak, about two percent. The S and P. Uh, was up about one percent on the day, then uh, gave back a bit. You know, we we closed up on Nasdaq uh, point zero point seven four percent and up on the S and P zero point four three percent to the thirty one thirty one level on the S and P. And I should say, Nasdaq closed at above ten thousand once again at ten thousand one thirty one. So you know everything you said at this question about the richness of these valuations on an earnings basis and the you know secular push that this market is getting from the fed yeah and so i think it goes back to the question that uh, hugh hendry was asking uh, richard vanna he was asking him can the mar- can the 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 fed bully its way through this can it just uh, provide a wall of liquidity and everything goes up and they can override the business cycle now, let's just say that maybe they could. And uh, in, in, uh, if uh, the COVID-19 virus didn't come back. But the problem is, the biggest problem is, is all of this is happening just at a time when we have absolutely mushrooming numbers in terms of the virus, which is the thing that caused the depression to begin with. So we saw an absolute terrifying drop. We're in the midst of a, uh, a surge up, not to the same levels, but 
now we're because we're releasing out of the lockdown, we're seeing first the number of COVID cases go up dr- dramatically in the United States. Then we're seeing the number of hospitalizations go up now dramatically as well. And then soon, probably, we'll see the number of deaths go up. And along with that will be the consumer reaction. I was talking to David Rosenberg about just this point today. That's a video that we hope we'll be able to release on Thursday. And he was saying, you know, it's interesting to think that on it was February that we saw the peak in the, uh, that's when the recession happened. That's when the peak of the cycle was. The NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, dated the recession from February, not March when we shut down, but February. So what it says is consumers react to the circumstances. They saw what was going on and they pulled back already uh, from the peak in February. The exact same thing is going to happen now. And I believe that that means that you know, despite the wall of liquidity that we're seeing, despite the bubblicious uh, activity, the the animal spirits in equities, uh, you know, the data are going to roll over and that's going to have a very pernicious effect on economic growth and therefore on shares. And it's just a matter of time before that effect comes in because the numbers are so dramatically increasing. It has to have that effect. You know, you absolutely read my mind. That was exactly the direction that I was going as well. You know, back in the real world, we had uh, Dr. Fauci testifying before Congress, uh, referring to this as a, quote, disturbing surge, close quote. California and Arizona see their largest daily increases in the history of the crisis. Uh, Florida rose 10 percent. Obviously, these are two of the most populous states in the country. And 31 states now are reporting are not numbers. That's the number of people that every person transmits to above one. That means the virus is growing. And, you know, by the way, let me just say, just as an aside, even though I do think the Germans will get it under control, when I mentioned Gutus law, there are a few other outbreaks. Uh, there was something in Berlin. There uh, there was, I believe, something in Munster, which is another part of Nordland westfalen which is the same state that uh, Gutus law is in. And my sense basically is that the R naught on Monday was 2.7, right? It was it's supposed to be below one. So we have a massive increase in Germany. So for them, uh, you know, they've locked down Gutesloh, they've locked down one of the cities that's really close by, and they really want to get this under control. Uh, by contrast, in the United States, you see these numbers going up. We're not talking about the the R factors here, but not, even so, you were not even wearing masks. You know, uh, many of these governors uh, in Texas, Greg Abbott, he's not saying that you you must wear a mask. Uh, DeSantis in Florida, he's not making any sort of mandates in the same way that the Germans are. So it's almost guaranteed that you're going to see an increase. South Carolina is another state that I should mention that Myrtle Beach has seen an absolute mushrooming of cases. And that's only for the 300,000 people that live there. You know, they get 40 times as many people coming to Myrtle Beach uh, every year as actually live there. And their occupancy rate went from something like 6% in April to 74% in May and June, and that's only a little bit down from the 81% at this this time normally. So all of those people, you know, went to South, to Myrtle Beach where 
the virus was rampant. And then they went back to their places, their homes in Ohio, Kentucky, other places, and they're and spreading the virus in those places as well. So we have an absolute epidemic level of increases, and this is going to have a very chilling effect on consumption, irrespective of what kind of lockdowns you, you do. And I don't really think that you're going to get the sort of massive lockdowns be, just because of the economic impact. But nonetheless, we're going to see a, a, an extreme pullback in, in consumption. Yeah. I know you want to talk about the W-shaped recovery. How do you tie all of this together, Ed? When you look at the recovery, the pandemic itself, markets, and the underlying macroeconomic conditions, what's the common narrative? Yeah, so I look at it as in um, the pandemic drove the, the W down uh, on the first leg. The lockdown drove it way down to create the W. The reopening created a snapback. Part of that was pent-up demand. But part of that was moving back up to near the levels that we had before. And now before we can start to trickle up back towards the levels where we started in, in February, uh, we're seeing a second wave, if you will. Some people like Fauci, he's calling it a continuation of the first wave, but I would consider it almost a second wave. And the reason being is it's as in unlike Germany and in Europe where the, uh, the reopenings happened and they haven't really seen the spike uh, in numbers that we've seen in the United States, we've seen this spike because uh, social distancing behavior has been relaxed. So that's an, a wave that is, if you look at the numbers for Arizona as an example, uh, the, the numbers are very similar to what you saw in New Jersey or New York in, in March in terms of the infection rate uh, per, uh, thousand, um, per thousand people. And so that's going to cause the second leg of the W down. And only once uh, people feel that that's under control will we see uh, things go back up again. So that's how it, it really is. I think that uh, what we've seen in other pandemics in the past, what research has shown is, is that it's actually the pandemic that causes the economic uh, recession not the uh, reaction. This this particular rece recession is very different because never have we seen such a complete lockdown before. But we're now getting the economic reaction from the pandemic itself. Uh, that's going to be the secondary relapse that's going to cause the middle of the W to, to start to see a rollover. I would imagine you could call it uh, two recessions because the snapback is so large. Uh, you know, normally you don't see the NBAR call a recession as it did so quickly after the event. So I believe the snapback is so large that they're going to call the end of the recession and that if we roll over and go into recession again, it won't actually be one long recession. It will be two distinct events, one which was very sharp and short and the other one which is more pronounced. You know, Ed, you make such a critical distinction there. The notion that the slowdown, the recession isn't caused by an economic reaction. It isn't caused by animal spirits. It's caused by the damage that the virus is doing to the economy itself. It suggests that it's not something that we can sort of kumbaya our way through. There is just an inherent contraction that's going to occur in economic activity as a consequence of the physical implications of the pandemic. Right. Yeah. And they've they've modeled that for the pandemic in 68, the pandemic in 57. They've modeled it for the pandemic in 1918. And they've looked at other uh, sorts of episodes like this. 
there is just a natural uh, down wave in a in a in a of influenza or a pandemic like this of this magnitude. And so as a result, uh, that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna see. It's not quite the level of a, of a lockdown, but it's still very dramatic. Yes. You know, we were speaking earlier uh, about one of my favorite videos uh, thus far this week, the Brent Johnson, uh, Lynn Alden video, uh, where it's a continuation of something that Brent's been talking about for some time now on Real Vision, um, which is the dollar milkshake theory. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I'm not as uh, well versed in terms of what Brent says about dollar milkshake, but I do think it's interesting uh, about uh, I saw that Stephen Roach was talking about the dollar falling. Uh, he was talking about the dollar falling as much as 35 uh, percent of DXY, you know, on a trade uh, trade weighted adjusted basis. So I, I find that to be extreme. I don't know what would cause the dollar to fall 35 percent unless uh, you're you're not thinking about a dollar smile. Uh, you know, I think the dollar smile has a lot of validity. That is, is, is that the dollar is strong when uh, everything is weak and everyone wants the dollar. The dollar, when other countries are outperforming, relatively speaking, that's when the dollar is weak. Perhaps that would be the case that he expects the 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 U.S. to because uh, the U.S. will resume its role as the uh, the world's um, uh, debtor nation that somehow will be weak relative to Europe or Japan or China. And uh, I, I don't I don't see that. I don't buy into that as as the outcome. So I I'm much more I'm much more likely to believe that the pandemic will uh, reassert itself in a way that causes a liquidity crunch uh, down the line and that that will cause uh, the dollar to be higher. People will want dollars. So I'm much more on Brent Johnson's side in, in that regard. Yeah. You know, in some senses, it's fascinating because Brent Johnson and Stephen Roach are almost are two opposite poles in this argument. You know, the basic premise of the dollar milkshake theory uh, is that the U.S. has a straw and it's going to suck up assets from elsewhere in the world. The original reasons um, that uh, that uh, Johnson gave uh, as the primary drivers, at least, were uh, uh, U.S. tightening monetary policy, rising rates in the U.S. while the world was loosening. Uh, and um, and but he goes on to say that tightening was never the only reason. And I think touches on some of the points that you were alluding to, Ed, which is that the U.S. is a, a global superpower. Uh, we control the sea lanes. We have uh, historically, at least uh, the last month or so, notwithstanding a long uh, tradition of uh, rule of law and still do on a relative basis compared to the rest of the world. We control the global monetary system uh, and global capital flows. We have the deepest and most liquid capital markets uh, in the world. And uh, and of course, as as you as you said, Ed, the biggest consumer economy driven by this massive uh, this massive glut of dollar debt that the world needs to uh, make trade flows uh, work in terms of the the dollar uh, the dollar settlement of uh, international loans. Um, Stephen Roach makes very much the opposite uh, argument, and I, I, you know it's interesting. I read Roach's original. Uh, Bloomberg op-ed piece that he wrote. And the basis of his argument is something he calls the, the Tina idea, which is there is no other alternative. Uh, and that's been uh, uh, something that we've thought for a long time. Brent Johnson makes that argument. You make that argument uh, in some in some permutations. The impression that I got was that Roach is obviously uh, someone who has had a very long and extremely distinguished career, first at Morgan Stanley, and now I believe at Yale. 
and I got the impression from reading that piece that he was looking back over this long and distinguished career and kind of issuing a warning, uh, a warning to all of us saying, guys, don't get complacent. The United yep. States is not the only productive economy in the world just because the, you know, the, the dollar has been the backbone of the international financial and monetary system uh, since Bretton Woods. It doesn't mean that will always be the case. Yeah, but in that warning, I sense a certain degree of politicization of uh, his economics, meaning that if you're an investor and you're thinking about how do I play this, you have to be very careful because he has ulterior motives. Uh, and that's always difficult when you're thinking about time frames in which to uh, to look at that. Because yeah. I think, yes, there is no alternative over the short term for sure. And that means that this whole concept of a 35% reduction is very much a um, a tail risk case that I don't see uh, panning out. I see more likely a liquidity crunch in which people want dollars panning out with the dollar being the, still the reserve currency, also the currency of debtors who need dollars uh, and, and therefore will, want, will bid for dollars. And again, I think it's like a, uh, a dog uh, with the tail wagging the dog. That is, is that the capital account is driving the current account. Stephen Roach is making it seem as if, you know, the U.S. is profligate uh, and, you know, people don't save. I would say it's actually the excess savings of other countries, people wanting dollars. The reason that they're saving in excess is because they want dollars. They want to use the world's reserve currency, and that drives the current account. So the capital account is driving the current account. Stephen Roach is making it seem as if the current account is driving the capital account. And, and I don't buy his argument. Yeah. You know, all important points, but I think you really hit the nail precisely on the head when you talk about the distinction in the different time frames. You know, th this is something that we've talked about on this show as being so crucial. Brent Johnson is making a tactical, tradable argument. He's saying he has this view uh, over whatever the precise time horizon uh, he views it on, and he has this particular position that he seems to believe for a series of reasons is uh, a reasonable place to think about. Now, Stephen Roach is doing something very different. He's looking at this from a from a grand strategic perspective, from a, you know, a hundred years of U.S. history perspective. And I got the impression that he was more making uh, a global policy recommendation rather than a, a tactical analytic view of a particular asset market, in this case, uh, currencies and uh, and the U.S. dollar. Yeah, and I would agree with that. He is much more of an economist in this case, even though obviously he used to be a market economist at Morgan Stanley. Really, uh, what he is doing is he's talking about uh, you know economic policy more than uh, markets in this case. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And as always, a great conversation. Markets, macro, coronavirus, a little bit of tech, and a deep dive on the dollar. As always, Ash, looking good, Billy Ray. <laughs> looking good, Randolph? Is it No, it's Lewis. <laughs> Lewis. Ah, I keep stepping on it. Thanks again, Ed. You bet.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.